Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Fulfillment of Time, When Creation in Genesis Meets Redemption in Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January the 3rd, 2010. Happy New Year! The end of the old and the beginning of the new year invite us to contemplate the passage of time. Where did the past year go? What might the future hold? The readings from the Gospel of John and Paul's epistle to the Ephesians for this week reach back to the beginning of all space and time and then stretch forward to their fulfillment in cosmic redemption. Despite the bleak headlines of the nightly news, they remind us that Christians ought to be the ultimate optimists. You don't have to read far in John to notice striking contrast between his gospel and the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The three synoptics portray Jesus as a hometown carpenter, a rebel rabbi, and an itinerating preacher. John, on the other hand, borrows a Greek philosophical term to describe Jesus as the Logos of God. He employs grand metaphysical themes like light and darkness, life and death, time and eternity. He uses metaphors to describe Jesus like bread of the world, living water, and the good shepherd. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on literal events. The synoptics organize particular and pithy sayings of Jesus into collections or narratives, like the Sermon on the Mount. In John, Jesus gives long theological discourses, as he does in chapters 13 to 17. The first sentence in John echoes the first sentence of the entire Bible to draw an unmistakable parallel between two unrelated texts separated by 2,000 years. The elegant words of Genesis 1-1 read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John begins his gospel, In the beginning was the word. Why does John do this? What is he saying to us? Beyond the obvious literary affinity, what's the deeper connection between the Jesus of John and the God of Genesis? The prologue of John 1, 1-18 makes two connections between Jesus and Genesis. And it's not too much to say that these two connections form the sum and substance of the entire Christian story. John links Genesis and Jesus in order to connect creation and redemption. Jesus embodies, number one, the revelation of the invisible God, and number two, he enacts the redemption of the material creation. He's the infinite and eternal Logos who entered time and became finite flesh. Just as God's glory inhabited the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, so the glory of Jesus tabernacled in his fleshly body, 
In Jesus, God created the world, says John. And in Jesus, God redeems the world. Paul makes a similar theological connection with equal literary flourish. As any seminarian who has struggled to learn Greek knows, in the original Greek text, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14 is one long, ponderous sentence that piles clause upon clause. Mrs. Tilly, my ninth grade English teacher, would give Paul a failing grade for grammar. Different translations of the Bible struggle to punctuate Paul's syntax. But like John, and beyond his tortured prose, Paul connects creation and redemption. Whereas John and Genesis begin at the beginning of creation, Ephesians 1.4 imagines a scenario before the creation of the world. Although this sounds like science fiction or perhaps metaphor, I take Paul's words at face value. The universe is about 14 billion years old. And even though that's an unimaginably large number, it's still a finite number. So what came before the beginning of space and time? And when, in the distant but certain future, the universe flies apart from the continued expansion of the Big Bang, or whether it collapses into a big crunch from the forces of gravity, what will be after the end of the end? Our best scientific minds even explore these ideas. At the Large Hadron Collider, the world's largest, newest, and highest energy particle smasher buried underground near Geneva, physicists are conducting many experiments. One of them simulates the Big Bang that separated before and after of all space and time. As described in an article in the New York Times, scientists are conducting nothing less than a 15-year, $10 billion quest to recreate laws and particles that prevailed just after the Big Bang, when the universe was less than one trillionth of a second old. For Paul, the chronological march of clocks and calendars started by the Big Bang is going somewhere rather than nowhere. He says that time itself is progressing toward what he calls a fulfillment. He tells the Ephesians that the mystery of God's will, hidden in eternity past, is revealed in the first century Jesus. Creation will receive its redemption when God, as Paul says, brings all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Paul's remarkably comprehensive vision embraces all space and all time. The future redemption of the original creation is so central in his thought that he repeats these ideas in almost identical language in four additional epistles besides the Ephesians. It's like Paul had a computer and did a cut and paste of his thoughts to five different churches. The ultimate destiny all, of all creation is liberation and freedom, adoption and redemption. 
We read in Romans 8 that the scale and scope of this future hope encompasses the whole creation. We read in Colossians, God created all things in heaven and on earth. In Philippians, that he seeks the worship of things in heaven, things in earth, and then interestingly, things under the earth. Colossians says that he'll reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth. And since he will sum up or bring together all things in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 1.10, then of course God delights in bestowing his fatherly favor on the whole human family in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 3.15. Paul's incremental logic is palpable. Redemption, redemption is the destiny of each person, every nation, all creation, and the whole cosmos. Or as Paul puts it, not only on earth, but under the earth and in heaven. God was in Christ, says Paul, reconciling the cosmos to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 The creation of Genesis will meet its redemption in Jesus. This is an affirmation of religious faith, of course, and not an assertion of scientific fact. But that doesn't mean we should relegate this scenario to fiction, and certainly not believe that science alone can fully describe the meaning of the cosmos. In fact, the connection between creation and redemption has an intensely practical implication. When the eternal word entered time and assumed flesh, he reminded us that the material creation is inherently good. The first chapter of Genesis did this long ago, of course, poetically proclaiming seven times that all creation was good. But many Christians have embraced a sort of dualism that accepts the spiritual as a superior good and rejects the material as an inferior evil. The incarnation of Jesus dispels all such dualisms. Brian Wren captures this important observation in his poem, Good is the Flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk in the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling perceiving within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the world has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing, or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. 
longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Between the mysteries of creation in eternity past in its future fulfillment is the present. And today's present is one that Christians embrace with enthusiastic optimism. For books this week, I review Mary Gordon, Reading Jesus, A Writer's Encounter with the Gospels, New York Pantheon Books, 2009, 205 pages. A few years ago, Mary Gordon was stuck in a taxi in New York City's rush hour traffic. When the driver turned on the radio, she was forced by her captivity to listen to some drivel on Christian radio. Gordon, an award-winning author and professor of English at Barnard College since 1988, has written 15 novels, memoirs, and works of literary criticism. She was raised as a Catholic, and so she's familiar with the scriptures, at least at some level. But listening to the radio that day provoked a realism that she says filled her with, quote, a clutch of anxiety and shame, end quote. She was almost 60, she said, but have never read the gospel straight through from the beginning of Matthew to the end of John. This book is the result of that quote, disturbing and exhilarating enterprise, end quote. Gordon doesn't let herself off the hook with a superficial reading. It seemed to me, she writes, that if I were going to take this project seriously, I would have to question my own reading and examine its lacunae. I would have to ask myself, do I really know what the Gospels are about? Or have I invented a Jesus to fulfill my own wishes? She aims for a tone that's thus personal and self-questioning. In the first half of the book, she explores what, she, what draws her to Jesus as the so-called irresistible incomprehensible. Beginning with the prodigal son, she wonders about God's economy of mercy that invites celebration, joy, and generosity but also asks us, are you envious because I am generous? And so the radical challenge of Jesus, perhaps everything we think in order to know ourselves as comfortable citizens of a predictable world is wrong. In the second half of her book, Gordon turns to problem texts. She writes, there are, for there are as many reasons for being appalled by Jesus as there are for being drawn to him. Even though she admits that it's tempting to follow Jefferson and excise from the Bible what you don't like, she's far too honest to take that easy way out. Miracles, for an example, are a problem for post-enlightenment moderns dedicated to the scientific method. But in the end, she would not delete them. Calls to asceticism and self-denial make her wonder about happiness and pleasure. The call to be perfect sounds ideal, but it's impossible. Apocalyptic language is violent 
and seems to encourage readers to see themselves as elect and their enemies as eternally damned. The anti-Semitism of John and the divinity of Jesus complete her survey of problem texts. In a final and separate chapter, Gordon contemplates the seven last words of Christ. She writes, What words could be plainer than these? The plainness of the language gives me the courage for a plain assertion, an assertion that I find embarrassing to make. But embarrassment is not one of the great emotions, and these words demand the attempt at a response that does not mire itself in self-regard. And so now I say, these words are the foundation and basis of my religious life. They serve for me as a filter or a funnel in which everything that has gone before in the Gospels pours itself and arrives at the end as a pure tincture, clear, usable, entirely free of sediment and residue. The living water, the water of life. These are not the last words of Oedipus, Lear, or Alexander the Great, she observes. Quote, they're the last seven words of Jesus, whose death either has no meaning or creates a meaning unique in the history of the world. Mary Gordon, Reading Jesus, A Writer's Encounter with the Gospels. The film this week I review Up in the Air from 2009. Ryan Bingham, played by George Clooney, spends 322 days a year on the road, and what he calls 43 miserable days back at home in his Omaha apartment. He's an employment terminator who fires people for a living. His greatest aspiration is to amass 10 million frequent flyer miles. He's mastered the corporate jargon of his script. He's both pastoral and impassive with the people he fires. He glides with ease from Topeka to St. Louis and beyond. And of course, he has no life at all, not even time or love enough to attend his sister's wedding. Bingham says he likes his life, and at first we believe him, and even envy his elite airport status. But in two exceptionally strong supporting roles, two very different women enter his life. And then his own company decides to fire people by remote video conferencing, making his own profession in person obsolete. Bingham is thus yanked back into reality. The plot of this film is simple and predictable, but it still works as a vicious satire about corporate America and its dehumanizing powers. Up in the Air has been nominated for at least six Golden Globe Awards. And finally, for poetry, in the turn of the new year, we posted a poem by John Milton. The title of the poem is On Time. Fly, envious time, till thou run out thy race. Call on the lazy, leaden-stepping hours, whose speed is but the heavy plummet's pace. And glut thyself with what thy womb devours which is no more than what is false and vain, in merely mortal dross, 
So little is our loss, so little is thy gain. For when as each thing bad thou hast entombed, and last of all thy greedy self consumed, then long eternity shall greet our bliss with an individual kiss, and joy shall overtake us as a flood, when everything that is sincerely good and perfectly divine, with truth and peace and love, shall ever shine about the supreme throne of him to those happy-making sight alone, when once our heavenly-guided soul shall climb, then all this earthly grossness quit, attired with stars we shall never forever sit, triumphing over death and chance in thee, O time. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 3rd, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.